0: Hello and welcome to the third series of the Bold Flavours podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we currently deliver millions of meals every week. Our purpose is to build amazing products that have positive impact on people and the planet and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect frank and fascinating conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick, and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational, and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is all about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, I'm talking to Jennifer. She's such an amazing leader who spent 20 years in enterprise software sales. One day in the 90s, she read the newspaper and learned about Mark Cuban inventing a way for people to stream sports online for the first time ever. She was so excited about the power of technology that she cold mailed billionaire Mark Cuban and actually got a job at his startup. The company was then acquired by Yahoo and since then she's seen so many tech companies both in the US and in the UK. Today Jennifer and I will talk about her journey from manager to leader, how she thinks about culture and great conditions and diversity for people to be their best and what makes sales great. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Um, before we talk about your 20-year uh, technology leadership journey, I want to hear where you grew up.
1: Oh, um, I grew up just outside of Chicago, a suburb called Park Ridge, which is pretty much the stereotypical American suburb. I grew up just a few doors down from Hillary Clinton. So, Oh, wow. But,
0: but please paint a picture. I'm not sure how how it would look.
1: It was very um, single family home, middle class. And I mean, the American middle class, as opposed to the British middle class, which implies, you know, quite wealthy. Most people went to public school, which in again, for for the Brits, that means state schools Walked to school every day. And it was it was quite idyllic.
0: And how um, what are some of the stories from your childhood that really kind of influenced you the person you are today?
1: Oh gosh, that's a good question. We all grew up basically believing that we could do anything. I grew up in a time, I'm a little bit older. I grew up in a time where there was very much the focus on you know, ensuring a good education. I'm the daughter of two academics. So So school was everything. And for for me, anything that I could couch in the language of an academic or a learning experience, I I got to do. And we weren't wealthy, but my parents made sure to provide for anything that I needed. And I'm very fortunate in that aspect.
0: Any any particular field your parents focused on?
1: Um, My dad was the dean of a medical school, which um, he thought he would interest me in, med- in medicine and brought me to see the cadavers when I was 14. Wow. And that immediately <laughs> ended my medical career. And my mother wasn't particularly happy about that excursion. Uh, <laughs> and my my mom is 78 and still working consulting in, in higher education on helping to make um, colleges and universities and specifically community colleges better
0: that's such a great age to be productive that's awesome i love yeah. that and and like what, what did you at what stage i guess did you develop a passion for technology when when did this happen
1: you know what i started my career working in the movie industry in distribution and i remember distinctly being in iowa and getting usa today which is kind of this national newspaper and reading a tiny little blurb about some guy in texas who figured out how to stream college basketball over the internet.
0: Oh, that and, guy. Yeah, of course. And
1: I basically immediately started hounding that guy because was that Mark I, Cuban. It was Mark Cuban. Oh, yeah. Um, and I really saw at that point I was selling, you know, VHS and DVDs. And I immediately saw that not too long in the future, my my job would be obsolete. <laughs> and I basically told him that I don't care. I would wash the, I would wash the windows, I'll sweep the floors. I don't care. I just want to be part of what he's building and join broadcast.com and got bought by Yahoo. And yeah.
0: So I'm a huge Mark Cuban fan. I mean, this is, this is fantastic. Can you, can you tell everyone who Mark Cuban is?
1: Um, So Mark Cuban founded broadcast.com. And then it got bought by Yahoo and he's the owner of the Dallas Mavericks and a number of other and other things that he invests in seed stage. And he's just really a brilliant human being, doesn't ask anybody to do anything he's not willing to do himself, responds to emails and has more energy than any human being should actually have.
0: And positive energy, right? Well, what I really yeah. find inspiring is, you know, I watch the American Dragons Den occasionally and he's got such a positive attitude and he's really inspirational. He wears his T-shirt. He's quite like, you know, a normal person whilst being a yeah. billionaire. And it's just fun listening to him.
1: Honestly, I'm, I'm so lucky that I got to go on that journey and get into technology in the 90s, back when nobody had a ton of experience. Now, trying to break in, you either have to be either fairly young or have some very specific experience. And for me, the 90s, it was a little bit of the Wild West. We were all figuring things out.
0: Wow. Okay. So total serendipity. You're working uh, in a non-tech industry. You come across mm-hmm. this guy, you kind of cold email or mail, I guess back then, more cold call. And then so serendipity yeah. happens, you start working there. Are you a hustler? Like, like it takes a lot of boldness to just contact somebody out of the blue reading about <laughs> that person in USA today.
1: Um, I would say I'm persistent, pleasantly persistent. If there's something that I really want, uh, I'm going to go after that. And that's, that's actually how I, how I approach sales is I sort of, I can only work for a company where I feel like I'm on a crusade where I know I genuinely believe in my bones that what I'm selling is going to make your life better. I don't want to just flog software. I really want to help improve my customers' lives. And I've turned down jobs where I could have made a lot of money, but I didn't believe in the product. Um, Because ethically, I can't do that. And I think that sort of goes back also to being raised in the Midwest, U.S., just very honest, hardworking. And that's who I was surrounded by. And for me, again, if I'm not on that crusade, I can't sell. But I know you can tell me no a million times, and that's okay. I respect that. But I will keep sending you stuff because I know eventually eventually you're going to turn around and say yes when it's right. And I will also tell, tell people when, you know what, actually, you don't need me. This is, this is not right for you. I don't want to sell to you because in a year you're not going to, you're not going to renew.
0: I love that. I mean, it's super refreshing to have that attitude and and boldness, right? Not many people dare to do that stuff um, and be that direct. And so before you started your job there, where did you actually study and why did you study what you studied?
1: Sure. So I studied at the university of Illinois, um, my undergraduate degree, got a degree in marketing, Interestingly, I've shifted to sales and I've since realized, and this is a little bit of an aside, that of all of the business disciplines, marketing, engineering, finance, sales is not taught in any universities. I don't think anywhere, there's no course on sales. And it's so fundamental to every business. So it's, it's really something that's lacking. It never occurred to me to go into sales. And in the U.S., People are very proud to be a salesperson. Mm -hmm. Um, In Britain, people will bend themselves into in human shapes to avoid saying they're in sales. I'm in business development. I'm in. Nobody just wants to say they're in sales. Sorry, going, going back. I went on a tangent there.
0: No, I noticed that. And I, I I love you pointing out that cultural difference because I've got plenty yeah. of friends in the US. I lived in the US for two years and oh. I, I know so many people who are doing enterprise sales, normal sales, and they're really proud people. Whereas you're right here, people are like a little bit like hush about it. It's a bit seen as dirty. Marketing is cool. Sales is kind of pushy. Um, so very, very culturally different. And I think when you think about accreditations, right, and and the Americans, especially in enterprise sales, having this huge playbook and everyone has a different standard they follow. I mean, here in Europe, it's the Wild West. I don't think there's a playbook, is there?
1: Um, I'm developing my playbooks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've developed playbooks.
1: I mean, there, there are, but it, again, because, you know, as you said, enterprise sales in the U.S., people are very proud to be in that because good salespeople, genuinely good salespeople are doing it to be able to solve a problem right there's no shame in that no and it's amazing really good salespeople people are experts in their field and really smart companies take advantage of learning from from their vendors
0: makes perfect um, sense um, um, i, I want to stay on that persistency topic i love that personality trait it's awesome like can you tell another story that's like similar to the one um, where you just cold called people
1: uh, gosh, I mean, I have, I have customers where, um, you know, going back to what I said, I don't want to sell. I mean, I've been in weddings of some of my customers. I really have become friends, not everybody, but there was one customer who I really wanted to win. I really wanted to win. And in the meeting, I realized I was hundred percent not right for them. And I actually gave the name of a competitor and said, this is who you need right now here's a couple markers from your business. When you see this starting to happen, when you reach this level, when this complexity starts to come in, call me and then I'm going to be right for you. And I kept track through the, through the media and such. And when I saw that it was appropriate and I waited, I had to wait probably two years. Wow. I reached back out and said, hi, um, this is, remember we had this conversation and it was the easiest sale I had because they knew that I was, Honest, I wasn't trying to just flog something.
0: Wow. Okay. That's really fascinating. That's great insight. And just going back to kind of, you know, Mark Cuban, how long did you stay at his company? When did you leave? Why did you leave?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, a broadcast was bought by Yahoo fairly soon after I joined. So I really was part of the Yahoo family for most of my career there. I was there for five years. And I left to move to England to get a master's master's degree at the London School of Economics. I knew I wanted to live in England and higher education um, being in my family was something that was very um, not not pushed, but recommended. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, my parents never pushed anything. They they really let us be who we want to be. But I moved to England in 2003 and was meant to be here for a year and a half and 18 years later, I'm still here.
0: Wow. Um, as, as one does. Um, I mean, similar story. I, I love the UK. It's such a phenomenal country.
1: What brought you here?
0: What brought me here? I, to be honest, um, serendipity, I studied in Calexico. I was part of San Diego and I didn't read the fine print. And somebody said, "Look, you know, go and study in San Diego. It's awesome." And I loved California. I lived in Northern California before, and so I said, "Of course, you know, I'll do it." Um, I got a scholarship for it. Amazing. But what I didn't figure out was I was sent to the satellite campus in the middle of nowhere in a place called Calexico, where it literally turns out to be like 40, 45 degrees, you know, sunshine, pretty pale. And I mean, most fascinating experience of my life because it was a border town. And, you know, 80 percent of the industry is pretty much crossing the border illegally. And half the restaurants next door were shut down for, you know, because they found tunnels And so I, I learned a lot about culture and people, and I had a a best friend who took me into Mexico, but I didn't learn that much academically and sorry, long story, (laughs) but, but I kind of felt like I'm not challenging myself enough. And so I picked up two things. One, I started tutoring people. So I lectured kind of finance math and then i applied to investment banking not because i had a huge crush on finance but i felt like you know it's it's stimulating it's really fascinating i like business i like numbers and so I got invited to, to New York, Dayton sent me to Frankfurt. Um, and I, I didn't want to stay in Germany. That's kind of what I knew. And then somebody said, look, there's a position in London. Do you want to apply? Same company. Um, as, you know, why not? I've never, ever been to the UK. I like the UK, uh, or what I know about it. And since then, I've never left.
1: And it's <laughs> Sorry, been how long? long story. No, that's OK. How long has it been?
0: It, for me, it's been 13 years. I've got a passport. You know, I I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm love living here. But let's, let's talk about Jennifer again. <laughs> um, so before we talk about the UK, the siren call, going to the UK, you know, five years, Yahoo. Like, how was Yahoo back then?
1: This was in the heyday, I'm I'm always quite conservative because I was there for when, you know, from 99 and then 2000, or 99 when the market went way up but I was there in 2000 when an awful lot of people lost their homes in that crash. Um, So I've seen it from all sides and it was a little bit the wild west because we were all kind of building something and the internet was still not new but I certainly had to, you know, log in from home. I had to use my AOL dial up. And I remember going from, you know, like a, like a 46 K modem to 124 and thinking, wow, this is the fastest thing ever. (laughs) Um, But but there was also a lot of hubris, right? We thought we knew everything and we could explain to old school companies exactly how things would work. Um, It was the days of, you know, all of the push notifications and, and things have really changed. And it's really interesting to have been part of that evolution. I mean, I remember flash intros to all websites. Mm-hmm. And now if something takes more than a second to load, it's like, come on. <laughs>
0: uh, and, and the one topic I'm super fascinated in is if you look at the world today, Google is kind of synonymous with with search. But for a long time, it was like completely unclear whether it's Yahoo or Google. I mean, they were both pretty amazing big companies back then. Like, is there anything that kind of foreshadowed where these companies are today from back then when you worked there?
1: I mean, I remember Yahoo had the opportunity to buy Google and <laughs> Yahoo had the opportunity to buy Facebook. And those discussions were very much ongoing and You know, the foreshadowing, I think if somebody could look backwards, Yahoo would be a very different company. Um, Right now, it would actually be a company as opposed to a subsidiary. Um, I think, I mean, the reality is, is Google just really figured it out right, that people don't want a lot of extraneous information. They want very quickly to get to what they want to know with the fewest clicks and a lot of really smart people.
0: And is it fair to say that Yahoo focused more on kind of media and Google focused like narrowly on the mission of making search scalable?
1: Very much so. I mean, they had the finance vision and they were putting a lot of effort into building out communities around food and such, which is, is not necessarily what people really want. They just want to get to where they want to go.
0: Yeah. And what did you learn about yourself when you worked at Yahoo for so many years?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I learned that I have the patience of a flea, um, but no, cause everything was moving so fast. And for me, I learned that being curious is one of the most important things that anybody in business can be being curious about my customers, being curious about the market, being curious about where things are going, being curious about the competition. I don't even pretend like I know everything. I know a fraction, but I'll work really hard to ensure that i can get up to speed on things Um, and i am constantly trying to learn more because i want to be a resource for my teammates for my company for my customers and it's just constantly educating yourself and i really learned that at, at yahoo
0: and then education got you to the uk and how how did you end up here then staying for such a long time
1: I had a very brief sojourn out of technology after um, the London School of Economics, where I set up a gourmet popcorn company wow. in the UK. Yes, that we, we had some decent distribution and that ended up closing. And now there's lots of great popcorn companies. When I first moved here, it was popcorn was a pretty dire state, but realized that I really missed technology and I missed that, that fast pace and then got, got back into it.
0: So what was the first job back into technology?
1: I have a history of joining companies with names that are very difficult <laughs> to cold call. So I joined a company called Skinkers, which... That is a it,
0: difficult name.
1: Yeah, try cold calling. Like, Hi, I'm from Skinkers. And <laughs> there was a lot of hangups. That, that was basically push notifications in toolbars. Right. Um, and from there made probably one of the most consequential besides going to Yahoo um, and broadcast consequential moves, I moved to Bizarre Voice. Here in the UK, when there was nine people and ratings and reviews on websites, people were very skeptical about it. I like to join companies that are selling something new. It's more of an evangelical type of sale. And at the time, there was a huge terror over putting reviews on your website. What if somebody says something bad? And that's actually not a bad thing. It's people really want transparency. Mm. And, you know, especially now, I mean, authenticity is everything.
0: Yes. And we shifted from the brand to the product era. Yeah. And I mean, everything is fueled by reviews. Okay. Fascinating. And so, sorry, when was that?
1: Um, I joined Bizarre Voice in 2008, left in in 2013, and then joined a cybersecurity company and then an identity company. And now I'm in a decision augmentation company. For me, I genuinely, and this is going to sound quite mercenary and I don't mean it to, I don't actually care what I sell. I care that I'm solving a big problem.
0: Makes, makes sense. And like, talk me through kind of the leadership journey.
1: You know what? I could not have been a leader early in my career. And it, it really is a mind shift. And one of the things that people always think is your career path is you are an individual contributor and then you move to management. And that is a hundred percent false because they are two equally worthy and equally valuable and quite frankly, equally senior roles. Mm-hmm. And it just depends what you want to get out of your, your role. And early on, I loved the spotlight and I loved being the one to close the deals. And I loved the, the ability to kind of turn off at the end of the day. And I realized that at some point i got more satisfaction out of helping my teammates close deals and i got more satisfaction out of seeing them close deals and the reality is to be a great leader you have to be willing to step back you're not in the spotlight it's your teammates who shine it's your team it's your team who close the deals and get the accolades and as a leader it really is about leading from the front in terms of actions and setting the right behaviors but it, It's your teammate who really does, you know, does get the credit. It's your, your sales reps and, and it's not for everybody. And that's something that I've had to work really hard in some of my roles to let some of my, my team who wanted to be managers. And when I asked them why Mm -hmm. it was always, that that's the next step in my career. And that can't be the answer. The answer has to be that you really want to work on coaching and developing and and creating that sense of of purpose
0: i think you're making such a powerful point like i see this all the time where people just feel like society is telling them you know i gotta progress i gotta be the manager i gotta be the the head of the director the vp whatever whereas like in reality you know they might not play to their strengths and energy and so on and they're setting themselves up for failure but it's kind of society dictating what they should do
1: Yeah. And there's, I know I have some friends and colleagues who have specifically chosen the individual contributor path because the financial rewards are there. The control over their own lives are there. You don't have somebody WhatsApping you at two o'clock on a Sunday, you know, (laughs) needing something. It's a phenomenal career and it's right for a lot of people. They just don't realize it.
0: Yeah, totally. It should be a destination.
1: So, so in Gusto, do you have individual career tracks that, that are equally senior in terms of the management role and then the individual contributor?
0: I mean, there are lots of jobs that are destination jobs and your pay kind of constantly goes up and, and you know, hopefully you stay there forever. But I think we could do a lot better job making that more clear. I think if you surveyed, you know, 100 people at Gusto, then I, I would guess that 75% of people still say, oh, I should be a manager. I should be a head of, I should be a director. And just by the law of numbers, that's, that's not really possible. And, you know, as you said, if you dig deep into motivation, into energy level, into passions, people don't actually want to have that, that, you know, all, all these issues that come with it. So I think we need to do a better job.
1: That's, it's an organizational design as well, is showing that the career paths are not one on top of the other, but they're, they're parallel and you can have much more senior individual contributors than managers.
0: That's a great point. But so at some point you then realized you're actually enjoying this. You enjoy empowering the team, kind of setting the vision, setting the culture, but then letting the people get on with life. How How, like, what did you learn about yourself? Like, what did you, what beliefs did you have to shed on that journey?
1: I had to shed, I mean, I didn't really have to shed because it was, kind of shedding for me is that the need to be in the spotlight. Um, you know, I learned a lot about, you know, becoming more patient about the co- how important coaching is and being able to listen. And quite frankly, my role is to hire people oftentimes smarter than me. And my ego is not impacted there. It's, um, what I'm good at is organizing and orchestrating And I want teammates who are better, smarter, uh, you know, quicker than me, because my ego isn't caught up in that. I I want my team to shine.
0: So many people say what you say, but I kind of get the sense that you actually mean what you say. And it's just so powerful and refreshing. And and like, how do you then create kind of the condition for these people to strive? Like, what's your job as the leader kind of in terms of environment conditions?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you talk about motivation and, and the reality is, is as a single human being, you can't motivate somebody. You need to create the conditions for them to motivate themselves and things like, I believe very strongly in investing in training. So let me take a step back. There's two things that great sales reps want. They want to make the money. So it's, it's, and they want to learn it's earning and learning. And the reality is, at some point, they may be making a lot of money, but they're going to learn a lot more somewhere else and they will still leave. Mm -hmm. And it's about creating that culture where they're constantly learning. I believe in a lot of training. Obviously, I want my team to make money. That's fundamental. I also really believe in creating an atmosphere where the team really cheers on each other. Um, And I've been very fortunate to be a part of a number of those where there's not that feeling of sort of, you outwardly you clap and inwardly you're cringing because you didn't (laughs) close that deal. You know, and my teams have been so supportive of each other and that just makes everybody better when you genuinely want your team to succeed.
0: You know, I've never worked in sales, um, so yes, you I do. Well, you, I, I mean, everyone works in sales. Of you course work I'm in sales all day. I'm definitely selling all day. That's my job. You're See right. See
1: what I mean? There's that culture of I'm not in sales. <laughs> you are. You're the CEO of a company. Oh, I definitely
0: am. You're right. I mean, <laughs> fundraising, all that stuff, closing candidates. But I, what I'm curious is about is is kind of sales cycles and the psychology of the team, the leader you know you're you're sitting there you're trying to sell uh it might take i don't know 6 9 months 12 months like how do you psychologically set yourself up for that and also keep morale high
1: sure i mean the reality is is you hire different types of people for different roles if it's a quick transactional sale i'm not going to say you hire a more junior person because there are senior people who are very well suited to that the longer the traditional the enterprise sales the year to year sales cycle that's a different sales rep and that's a different skill set and some people grow from being a transactional salesperson to a more enterprise salesperson and some people don't and that's actually that's really okay and there's no shame in that it's about hiring the right people for that role and setting them up for success and there's when i'm hiring i look for there's intrinsic capabilities things that are part of who they are Do they have an intelligence? And by by intelligence, you know, I don't mean that they can solve the quadratic equation. I mean, you know, are they curious? Are they going to learn about their customers? Are they going to learn about the market? Do they have EQ? You know, in sales, sometimes it's pushing and sometimes it's, it's kind of taking a step back. So intelligence is really important. Do they have integrity? You know, I don't want to micromanage my teams. I want to trust that they're going to be doing the right things, both for the company and the customer right? So there, there has to be that integrity. Are they hungry? You know, especially working in a startup or scale up, there's always a lot more to do. And of course I want my teams to shut off and have, you know, family time and and work-life balance, but when they're working, will they make that extra phone call? Will they just do that much extra? And, And the last is, are they coachable? Do they know everything? Are they able to be coached? And that's, that's really important. And those are intrinsic. It doesn't matter what role you're hiring for. And then when you're hiring based on what role it is, if it's transactional or enterprise, then you look at the competencies. And if it's an enterprise long sale, somebody junior just isn't going to have that, that gravitas, or they won't know how to orchestrate a deal. You know, and orchestration is a huge part of any enterprise sale. You know, how to move around the company, how to make sure you have multiple touch points, when to bring in resources from your own company. Again, you have to hire based on, based on the role. And I'm sure, I mean, at Gusto, you're looking at that same thing too, no?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I love your mental model. I'm definitely taking notes here Um, and I'll shamelessly kind of steal some of the playbook. But yeah, I mean, like, look, we're hiring 500 people until the end of this year and it's only, you know, a couple of months left. And so (laughs) we're on such a huge hiring spree and um, it's challenging. It's really tough, but it's also huge fun. I I think in the last nine years, I, I had the privilege of interviewing a thousand plus leaders, um, for different jobs. And it's just fun to get to know people.
1: When you're interviewing people, do you have like a competency framework and a characteristic framework, or how do you, how do you have some kind of a rubric?
0: Well, just contextualize, right? Like when, when Gusto was founded, um, I didn't have any funds, you know, we hired interns, we couldn't pay a salary today, obviously the world is different. We've got an amazing people function. Um, And so I think over time we learn how to use competency frameworks. We force rank what we look for in people. We definitely um, prioritize kind of behavior, culture, attitude over actual experience. So whether Mm -hmm. you worked at Yahoo or Bank of America should be secondary. I mean, obviously some, some jobs require experience, but it is really about kind of the intrinsic raw materials, growth mindset, you know, these topics.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, I work really hard to make sure that I'm not, not hiring clones. I, you know, a a whole army of Jennifer's would, would not be a good thing, but it's, it's, it's really, I've learned a lot from my HR teams to make sure that I work to remove my inherent bias.
0: And just just on that topic, bias. So you've got like 20 plus years in technology. You've got an amazing vantage point. But to my knowledge, you know, females in technology is what, like 20% in the UK? I've got no idea. And you mentioned the word bias. I wasn't going to ask, but I'm still fascinated. Like, what, what are we missing? You know, are you seeing the progress you're hoping for over the last 20 years or are we kind of failing?
1: I think we're still failing because most companies have a very low, if you're just talking about, you know, male to female, females in technology are always quite low. And then when you start talking about people of color and different, different capabilities, and even talking about neurodiversity and some of my best teammates, you know, there's different neurodiversities that they've had, and they bring a very different viewpoint that I wouldn't have seen. And I love that. And so I think, What's good is is companies are recognizing and they have targets for hiring. The problem is, is, is just the, the, ta- the talent pool is there, there needs to be just from, from almost grammar school up this focus on training people to start building that, that capability. I think I read somewhere that, or I heard that Uruguay was focusing on getting every kid in grammar school to learn coding.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: I need to check that.
0: I need to look into that. That sounds amazing. And what is it you would tell me um, as Gusto's CEO, like what what more should I be doing? We are doing a lot. I'm I'm very committed to the topic, but I'm still keen to kind of get your perspective.
1: No, I mean, I think what you said is, is, is really good that you're hiring more for, it depends on the role, right? But that you're hiring for their characteristics rather than their experience. And I think that's something that I probably need to do a better job at. But also, you know, I would love to see Gusto working to help develop future talent. And that's really important is to, to create that, that ability. And there's lots of programs to help people who might not have an affinity for technology or might not realize. You know, the same goes with sales. I think, I really think sales needs to be destigmatized in this country, but also again, foundational courses taught.
0: And so here is a really big question for you. So Uh (laughs) this year, I had the huge pleasure of talking to like 10 CEOs of B2B enterprise software companies. And nine of these 10 CEOs told me don't ever hire salespeople from the UK. They, you know, sales in the UK is not established. All our sales guys are, are American. Now, I can't comment on this. I don't have any vantage point, but you are American and you've lived here for 20 years. So I'm I'm putting you in a very difficult position.
1: I think that's categorically false. Okay. I think, well, it depends. Look, it depends on how much you're willing to invest. And there are phenomenal salespeople here. And the culture is changing. People, I'm starting to see, you know, glimpse of people saying, I'm in sales. But that's that that I feel like that might be a little bit, and I'm gonna get in trouble here, but that might be a lazy lazy answer because you have to be willing to invest in the training and you have to be willing to invest in constant improvement both of yourself i mean i'm i wouldn't even pretend to be perfect there's so much more i need to learn
0: pretty sure after this episode there will be so many more people who want to go into sales um and i kind of agree it's it's a pretty big generalization um i
1: hope so and it's you know i think the the enterprise sales a lot of the great enterprise sales companies that that invested a lot came out of the U S and I think maybe that's where the mindset is, but I'm very proudly hire British people. I do have, I did have to change my approach a bit when I moved here in the U.S., I could be more direct and quite a bit more pushy in the UK. There's, there's almost a reluctance to say no, Mm -hmm. instead of saying, no, I don't want this (laughs) in which case that's actually when sales really starts is when they say no, but I've just had to change my approach a little bit.
0: Yeah, same here. Coming from a very direct, in-your-face country, um, to a much more kind of, how are you feeling? You know, how's the weather? Like, what, what's going on today? Like, it's a very different approach culturally. I agree. Yeah. It's fun. Um, do, do
1: you do you see that bridging though? Because you know, obviously, you, you grew up in Germany, correct? You said
0: yes. Yes, um, the thick German accent has never gone away, but
1: I, I still sound like I just moved here from Chicago.
0: Is it bridging? I. I, I think it's kind of converging to some extent, you know, like companies like Gusto, we employ almost 40 nationalities. And so it's kind of a melting pot of different cultures. And and there's kind of a commonality, and that's the culture, the values, the ownership principles, kind of the behaviors we celebrate. It's, it's not so much, you know, is it, is it a British culture versus a German one?
1: Can I ask, I mean, let me let me turn this on you then. For Gusto, what benefits have you seen by having such a diverse culture?
0: I mean, ultimately, we are not in the job of squeezing 1% of innovation out of our, I don't know, engineering system, for example, right? We are in a blue ocean. Uh, opportunity. So our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner. Our purpose is to have positive impact on people and the planet. And there's like no way that I as the CEO can figure out everything and then just tell the next person in, in the org design kind of you do X. And that person tells the next person, you know, work 10% harder to achieve Y. In all honesty, I don't know how the future looks. I've got a fairly clear kind of strategy in place and I've got like principles in place, but I really need everyone to be activated, to be their best at work, to help me figure out how the future will look. And I think the more diverse the team is, the more ideation we have as a company and the more likely we find out what our blind spots are, what our biases are. We innovate faster as a team. And so diversity across all dimensions just matters the world.
1: Would you consider Gusto a food company or a data company?
0: Data company. Because, data first, and look, huh? let me qualify that comment. But, you know, we have 1,500 people working at Gusto. You know, of that, we have, what, like 20 people working as magician chefs. Like, they are amazing and they deserve so much credit. But what is that, like 1%? I mean, the company is so diverse. And the common denominator really is... We look at data to tell us the truth and we try to create a meritocratic system, you know, in which ideas matter, not whether you are the CEO or the assistant or, you know, the floor operative. The ideas really should matter. And data is kind of the great equalizer. And the more data you can push into the front line, I think the more you empower people to really have a voice.
1: No, that's fantastic. I love I love that.
0: Let's um, let's pivot slightly. I love to hear more about coaching. So, you, a couple of times you mentioned coaching. You know, mm-hmm. talk me through what you learned about coaching and, and the power of coaching.
1: To be honest, and I'm still learning. Would I would I give myself a ten out of ten? Not a chance. And I've learned so much by working for great people myself. In terms of people who didn't solve things for me, but asked questions to make me think about a problem in a different way. And I'm still learning how to be, you know, really good at this, but it's, I think it's, it's really important when you're dealing with sales reps is to think every conversation that you're having with a customer, what, what went well, what could you have improved on, you know, what maybe should you have done differently? Um, And one thing that I really like is in, in forecast meetings, having the team talk about deals amongst themselves and question each other. And I find oftentimes, you know, my team will ask really insightful questions, which then sparks something in their own mind. Like, Ooh, I'm asking this person to do something. I'm not doing this myself, Um, but it's
0: super powerful.
1: It's, it's, it's so powerful. And again, you have to make sure that everybody agrees to take egos out of the room because there have been times when a senior rep is questioned by a more junior rep. And this junior rep was asking phenomenal questions and the senior rep was getting quite perturbed. And, you know, that was, that was a uh, hiring failure on my part. They weren't coachable. And it was, and there's been, there's been magic that happens when, when you allow that for learning for everybody to learn from each other. But, but coaching is the, is really one of the key things as, as a leader is being able to ask the questions to help, help your team think about things in a different way and nudge them in the right way without telling them what to do.
0: Yeah, it's such a powerful point. And, and who is coaching Jennifer? You know, like you have uh, mentioned that you have got yeah. such amazing kind of people you work for, but how, how are you being coached?
1: I'm not shy about asking for help. And so I am extraordinarily fortunate that I've worked for some amazing people. And to be honest, I still go to them for help. I've got a WhatsApp group of peers that You know, sometimes, you know, we're all in leadership positions and sometimes I face something that I don't actually know the answer to. And I'll ping my peers and say, this is what I'm thinking and just get some, get some advice because any problem that I'm facing, somebody has faced before Mm -hmm. there's, you know, I'm not facing anything incredibly unique. And, you know, I know the journey that my company is on. I know where we want to get to. I know how to get there. You know, it's just sometimes the steps there's the, I need, I need a little bit of advice. And so I I have mentors myself.
0: Makes sense. And I mean, would you consider coaching people outside your organization? Like, is this something you would pursue at some point, professionally even?
1: Um, Probably not professionally, but I'm a very, very strong believer in in informal coaching. And, you know, at some of my past companies, what I would do is especially to help promote women, I would kind of very informally serve as a coach or a mentor um, and try to help them get promoted or, or, you know, gain positions that they knew they wanted. And, but I never did that formally for me. It was just more because I believe it's the right thing to do. Mm
0: -hmm. Really, really powerful. And talk me through how you unwind. I mean, again, you know, chasing big kind of sales, uh, events must be really stressful. You're kind of waiting to get a call back might happen, might not happen. Like, how do you unwind? Like, how do you balance this all?
1: that's a phenomenal question. And once I can answer that, I would love to have a great answer. I, I um, people who know me will probably say I don't unwind. I mean, but you exercise, seem pretty high energy. I am, you know, just once I want somebody to meet me and be like, she's so chill. Um, that, <laughs> that that's never going to happen. That's okay. I know, I know my strengths and my weaknesses. I mean, exercise is really important. I think having, interests outside of work that have nothing to do with work is important. I think connections with friends and family is critical and I you know I think as horrific as this pandemic has been, I think it also really put a spotlight on the need for self-care and the need for human connection because spending you know all day staring at people through pixels is not healthy. There needs to be that human interaction as well.
0: Yeah, that's a really powerful point. Have you tried meditation, mindfulness, these topics?
1: <laughs> oh, I have. I'm working on it. It's a journey.
0: Same here. Same here. I think, you? you know, I, I have very high energy. I don't sleep that much. And I, I'm like constantly hyper and thinking about stuff. And I just find it too difficult to shut down my mind. Um, the only way that works is like power yoga, which is more like fitness and pushups mm-hmm. or like, you know, sitting on a bike or, or running in the park. That That's the closest I can get to meditation.
1: Do you encourage your employees to, to participate in those things?
0: We do. I mean, we have a running club and we do all kinds of things. We've got like a yoga teacher coming to the office. Um, I mean, to be fair, office attendance is pretty low at the moment. You know, we pay for gym classes, virtual gym staff. Joe Wicks has done a couple of uh, sessions with us as a team, which has been hugely fun. He's amazing.
1: That's fantastic. And you know what? I think, I think that's important because that goes to the culture of the company and what I'm finding is, you know, the Gen Z, sorry, and millennials, they, they care deeply as they should about the culture of, of where they're joining. And it's not just about how much money they're going to make. It's not just about the financials anymore. It's about really a whole balance.
0: Yes, you massively see this. And I mean, you know, the perception of Facebook, Google, Amazon is shifting so fast. I I don't want to bash them. These are great companies, but the perception is shifting. And I think if you can offer, you know, not just an exciting vision, growth and so on, but you can actually talk about purpose with credibility. It's a massive, massive differentiator.
1: It was quite nice having everything down for a few hours the other night, wasn't it?
0: (laughs) It was bizarre like, why is none of this working? Let's talk about you. You know, you established that there are some people who arrived at the destination. They don't need to be managers to be happy and fulfilled in life. But then mm-hmm. there are a few people who want to be leaders, who want to kind of mm-hmm. emulate Jennifer's journey. Like what what advice would you give them?
1: Everybody's a leader, right? And some of my most impactful leaders have been individual contributors to start. I genuinely believe in promoting from within wherever you can because you've got that domain expertise and career ladders and and such. You know, I think it's about being willing to 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 take a step back when you're when you're looking at at what you want out of life and you know in sales there's a couple just non-negotiables and this is more capabilities of forecasting. You know, especially when you're working for a company that has you know, VCs investing, they want to know exactly what's going to happen. And so the ability to be predictable is important. And so I'm in my last role, I promoted two of my top performers into management and they're absolutely brilliant. And they were able to forecast for themselves, almost not to the penny, but I knew they were, when they said something was going to come in, it would. And for their teams, mm-hmm. they were absolutely able to to understand how to do that making sure that they are helping coach and coaching is a skill. And I'm, again, as I said, still learning myself, always learning, but coaching them on how to coach is important. Hiring is important. Making sure that when you're in, when they're interviewing team members, they, they have some kind of a framework and it's not just, oh, I like this person or this person seems similar to me. It's what are you really looking for? A lot of people don't realize that interviewing itself is a skill.
0: It's a huge skill and it's so difficult. Still still learning on that one. So those are fantastic kind of tips for people on the leadership journey. What is it that only you are doing today? Like, you know, what's, what's the stuff you focus on that has the greatest impact?
1: Well, I don't think there's anything that only me is doing. I think, you know, I would love to be that much of a vanguard, but I, I don't think I am. You know, I think it's really about being able, again, to take your ego out of things and figure what's best for the company and what's best for the team. And well, first and foremost, what's best for the customer, right? Let me, let me say that because ultimately we don't exist without the customers. We can have the best technology in the world, but if nobody wants to buy it and the customer isn't seeing value, then it's, it's a pointless exercise, but it's really about putting what's best for you last, but that ultimately ends up being perversely, what's best for you. If the customer is happy and the company is doing well and your team is doing well, by definition, you will be doing well as well. Also.
0: Powerful points. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been super fun.
1: Thank you. It's been great. Great speaking with you.